Hi, you're listening to More Friends with Trin Collins on the Lighthouse Works Network. I'm Trin Collins. Lighthouse Works is a tiny nonprofit located on a small island dedicated to giving amazing people the time and space to focus on their work. We aim to share with you our new friends, these lovely and marvelous thinkers and makers that have visited the island over the past 10 years. After or during the episode, make sure to visit our website, lighthouseworks.us, for more content, including images or links to some of the topics we cover. And of course, more episodes. So let's get started. Here is our first, first, first episode. It's with Catherine Taylor. Catherine was a fellow back in 2017, and she was nice enough to suffer through all of my tech requests <laughs> and talk with me. She's the author of two novels published by FSG, Rules for Saying Goodbye from 2007 and Valley Fever from 2017. We talk mostly about why her characters in her novel are drinking and eating so much, her love of beautiful sentences, and our mutual fear of our hometowns. Catherine is such fun to talk to and so invigorating to hear her voice again after so many years. I really hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, This is kind of like a new idea, a new endeavor, but I, I feel like Lighthouse Works is 10 years old. And in celebration of that and trying to look into the future, we want to be part of all of our fellows' lives. Everybody just is going to keep making stuff. And we're so small, I think it affords us the pleasure of doing that. So this is my attempt at doing that. And it gave me a great reason to to spend time to read your book. I did read, actually, I listened to the first book, The Rules of Saying Goodbye. Well, that was a good idea since I read it. I know it's so fun. <laughs> it was wild because it was really right after you were here. So I already had your voice in my head. So that was nice. But this second one's not on audiobook. So I was like, I got to read it. And I read it on Kindle. And it's the weirdest feeling where I'll highlight things and then it'll say three other people highlighted this. Really? Yeah. Please it's... give me an example of what you highlighted that three other people highlighted. That's incredible. I, I will. In fact, I'm going to just, I'm going to pull it out right now because I thought that was this wild kind of way of like trying to like connect to other readers simultaneously, if that makes sense. Of course. That's incredible. It's really weird. Okay. Let's see. Some stuff I, only I apparently in the world highlighted. Good. Okay. The one I remember that was highlighted was the one about the sister Anne where she growls like a dog. And (laughs) the idea is that she growls a lot, but she knows when to sort of like soften up. Oh, she's like a mother dog. Sometimes she's growling. I think there's a line like that. Yeah. But it was just so wild to be like, oh, three other people connected to this line. I think it's a line about mothering or something. I don't know, but that's weird to me too. But it's weird also that I remember it since that book is old now. (laughs) It's old now. Oh, we're all old now. I know. How many years was it that you were on Fishers? It was three years ago. It was 2018. Wow. Alarmingly, it was 2008. And I cannot tell you how many times I've thought, God, I wish I could apply for that fellowship. (laughs) 
<laughs> I wish it were like Yado, where like you could go back every once in a while. Uh-huh. I mean, it was this magical time. And I don't know if you've talked to the people I was with. I still text Beverly every once and again. I went to Khalil's show. It was right before the pandemic. I went to Khalil's show in LA, which was fantastic. Oh, and then he was at Art Week LA, which was right before the pandemic. But these two things happened one after the other. And Khalil and I both were like, we are going to see each other a lot more often. He's still with that wonderful girlfriend. You probably know all of this already. But then the pandemic kind of destroyed everything. And I had what was what people now refer to as the last dinner party before the <laughs> end of the earth. We've had dinner parties since then. But for about a year, of course, there were no dinner parties. And I had a dinner party. Thank God nobody got sick on March 9th of last year. And there were 25 people there. It was like the biggest dinner party I've ever had. Even at that dinner party, people were like, we don't think we should shake hands or aren't we supposed to elbow bump or like wave or we're not supposed to shake hands. And obviously then we didn't know what was coming, but that's to say that Christy came to the dinner party. And and that evening I thought, I love this girl so much. I'm going to see her all the time. And a week later, the world ended, but. (laughs) Wow. That brings such joy to my heart. Not that the world ended, but that you guys were still feeling comfortable and wanted to see each other. Are you just a pure Luddite? Like no Instagram? I don't have Instagram. I don't have Twitter. I do have a Facebook, but I haven't been on it in months. Facebook scares me. Facebook is horrible. The whole thing is horrible. This is why I won't put Instagram on my phone. It's like, I hate Facebook enough. And it's only, it's not even on. I finally, after years and like my laptop was something like 12 years old, I finally (laughs) invested in a new laptop, but I won't even go on Facebook on the new laptop. I just don't want Facebook to infect my beautiful, lovely new laptop where I'm getting so much nice work done. So when I do have to see something on Facebook, or I feel like I should check in every couple of months to see if I have any messages, I power up my old diesel laptop and I go on Facebook that way. (laughs) Do you feel like you have to keep a Facebook account for your job? Like essentially an outward. That's the only reason why. So once in a while, I'll post a picture of the dog or a cheese curd shaped like a heart because I think, okay, I don't want to be the idiot or the asshole who only posts stuff when they have something to sell. Yeah. But I am that asshole. I am. <laughs> I'm just faking it by posting cheese curds and pictures of the puppy. It's it's not a puppy. She's a 10 year old puppy, but. Oh my God. She's getting so old. I know. I can't believe it. She's just a puppy. She is just a puppy. All right. She's very well trained. Oh, okay. I'm going to get to the book. I had a super nice time reading this. And by the middle of it, I was like, didn't want to put it down, was totally obsessed because it felt like this weird buildup. And I just like the pressure of what is wrong? Is there something wrong? It just really got to me. And I had this one question. One, I feel like your personality is just like dripping all over this book. I don't know if that's like a good thing. That's the most positive thing I can hear. No, that's exactly. That's the nicest thing you can say. I think one of the nicest things you can say to a writer, right? What else do we have? We all have stories that are all the same. So our voice and our personality, once in a while, you might come up with a story that's a little bit different, but I don't think so. (laughs) What's Valley Fever about? It's about like a friendship and a betrayal. Yes, it's a little bit of a saga, but it's not long enough to be a saga, but it's essentially about friendship and betrayal. It's like the oldest story in the book. So the only thing we have that's original is our voice and our personality. So I think that's one of the nicest things you can say to a writer. Thank you. Oh, good. You're welcome. And I just felt like, A lot of the characters, it was like, you have this certain way of 
talking that's so entertaining and so fun. And the characters, I just, the banter and everything, the dialogue felt like the whole book is dialogue. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. Do you always write like that where it's just talking? Yes. I hear voices. (laughs) (laughs) I think all writers probably hear voices. One can hear, I can, when I can hear all the voices when I'm at the desk vividly. And so often the easiest thing to, to write is dialogue and I'll cut hundreds and I'm not exaggerating hundreds, if not thousands of pages of not just dialogue, other stuff too, but mostly dialogue. Because what I do is I let the characters into the room and they start talking and I write it down and and not all of that moves the story forward. Not all of that changes what's happening or develops the character. A lot of it is just like a lot of dialogue. It's small talk. It's, yes. Even if it's not small talk. I've spent all summer with my parents at, the, at their house. There like, used to be a summer house, but now my dad has retired. So they're here full time now. But so I've spent the whole summer with my parents and we sit down at the table almost every night for dinner. And the conversation is it gets repetitive, right? It's the same yes. thing. Yes. And so that is human life. But as I, I tell my students all the time, art is not life. The conversation has must move the story forward. It must, something must change, not just from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, but something in this scene, something in this paragraph of dialogue must change. And so I'll write hundreds and hundreds of pages of dialogue that changes nothing as in life our dialogue changes nothing a lot of the time. And that stuff, clever as it may be, (laughs) must go. So a lot of the time it all just gets cut out. But yeah, I feel very comfortable writing dialogue. That's so interesting. Do you feel like you eavesdrop on a lot of people's conversations? Oh, I'm a total spy. (laughs) Talking about airplanes and probably the reason I'm not making up lies anymore when I get onto an airplane, like faking accents and things is because now I'm just spying on people. Yeah. And I'm one of these people who don't, heaven forfend, you might be seated next to me on an airplane because I am the one pretending to look for the stewardess, but actually looking at what you're writing on your text messages. I, oh, Oh, I'm such, I will not, if I'm staying in your house, I will not go through your things. I'm not a medicine cabinet opener. Like some things really are like, some things are a bit (laughs) much, but I won't read people's diaries, stuff like that. But if you're in public and you're writing text messages right next to me, oh, I am going to take a peek. I love that stuff. I'm a total (laughs) eavesdropper. But uh, no, I don't go through medicine cabinets and read diaries. That I belong somewhere. You have I reveal all of my family secrets. Nothing is sacred. (laughs) My poor friends, their personal lives are just like typed out on the pages of my books. I won't go through your medicine cabinet. Has anyone gotten a little mad with you for... Oh, I've had divorces. I've had divorces. Friend divorces. Yeah. That's tough. That's tough. I'm going to tell you a wonderful story that you will probably cut out because it's not probably not as interesting as I think it is, but here is, (laughs) but here is an unbelievable story. I've never talked about this person in public. I will use a, I will use a fake name. I'm going to try to think, oh, I'll just use, I don't know because I don't want to talk about it in public. But anyway, an unbelievable thing happened where I was set up with someone okay. and on a date and he was going to read my book beforehand, which he did. And he got to the restaurant. And the first thing he said when he sat down is, I have to make up a name. Who is Jane? And I knew exactly who Jane was, but I was very confused. And, and it's not just Jane because it's a very unique name. I have right in front of me, the complete letters of Van Gogh. So let's say he said, who is Vincent? And I was like, Vincent, 
how does he, I know I've never spoken about Vincent. And I said, do you mean my friend, Vincent? And he said, yes, I mean your friend, Vincent. I'm racking my brain. I'm thinking, I know I've never talked about this person in public, but also if I had, I definitely would not have used the name. And I said, why are you, how do you know about this person? And why are you asking? And he pulls out the used copy of rules for saying goodbye that he had bought (laughs) online. And he says, because this was delivered to my house. And I open it up and it is the presentation copy. When you publish a book, you're given 10 copies before the book comes out. And those 10 copies go to your parents, your brother, your aunt, your best friend. And I gave my best friend Vincent a copy, of course, and inscribed it as one does to a very close friend. Thing is, Vincent was extremely unhappy with the novel, which drew a lot on our friendship. There was a character that drew not only on our friendship, drew on a lot of my close friendships throughout my life, but there were details that were 100% from our friendship. And Vincent was extremely upset and divorced me. And years later, I show up to this set up date that was absolutely nothing. Lovely guy, but absolutely nothing. And he says, who's Vincent? And it has the copy, the presentation copy of the book. Oh my God. I'll tell you, (laughs) this reminds me that there's something my mom says all the time. And I didn't realize how gloomy it was. Like I would just repeat it all the time. And she always says, you never escape your past. And I really, as I've gotten older and older, it just always is true. And I'm like, yeah. that, that book will find you. Embrace your past because your mom is so right. You will, there's no escaping it. If you do try to escape it, then you've just got secrets. That's no fun. And yeah, because I mean, it has exhausting. power over you. <laughs> right. So the thing is to not escape it, just accept, love, embrace. And as I think to myself all the time, and I think of all the bad decisions I've made, I think every decision you've made is who you are now and where you are now. And now, golly, knock on wood, but I'm quite happy. Every decision you may have thought was a disaster is all okay because you're right here now. And yeah, yeah. That reminds me of the book, which, you know, or the book that I read just this week, Valley Fever, and this idea of fearing where you're from and trying to escape it and then coming around to it in the end or making peace with it, whatever that is, it is such a universal story. And I really connected with it. You know, I'm not from Fresno, but I spent a long time trying to escape where I was from. And I feel like having moved back or not back, having moved to an island where it reminds me a lot of and is a similar kind of place to where I grew up, I thought, oh no. And then I was like, you know what? This is what it's all about actually is just making peace with it and enjoying the things about it that you like and moving on. It's interesting. I think that this moment, not just this moment in time, a large moment in time, maybe two or three generations ago, I mean, unless you were in some extreme situation, people didn't move so far away from where they were from. We stayed where we were. And now when staying where you are is a bit of an anomaly, right? Unless you're, unless you were born in New York city, you move, people don't stay so much in their, in the towns that they are from. And I think it's not a universal thing necessarily, but it's a common thing, this escaping where you're from, and then finally embracing it. When I got to college, I had gone to boarding school on the East Coast. And when I got to college, I grew up in Fresno, California. And I told everyone first day of school that I was from Massachusetts. Oh my God. (laughs) I was so 
embarrassed or I did not, I just did not. I'd been trying to escape Fresno, California since I was 13 years old. Five years later, I'm in Los Angeles going to college. And my one very close friend from college loved, and he's from Merced. California. So he loves to remind me that the first day we met, I told him I was from Massachusetts. It did not take long to come out that I was from Fresno. But yeah, you tried to tell me that you were from Massachusetts. That's so funny. It's funny, but it's also tragic. Anyway, then you get older and you realize, oh, and now being from Fresno is a badge of honor for me. I love that I'm from Fresno. Yeah. Yeah. By the end of the book, I mean, I sort of was like, Fresno doesn't seem that bad. When I was doing like the book group tours and things like that, or phone calls or whatever you do, a lot of people said to me, you should be, you're like a, did the Fresno city council sponsor this book? Because you really make Fresno sound like this paradise. I'm like, do I? (laughs) You don't though. It's a begrudgingness that you come around to, but like, there's a lot of like backhanded compliments. Only the pollution can make the sky this beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) That's true anywhere. That's true anywhere. (laughs) I know. Um, The sunsets in Fresno are spectacular pretty much every single night. (laughs) I was... All those pesticides. Oh God. I was the sort of back door into the wine industry was super interesting. I'd never really thought about that before. Was that something that you had thought about before or? Yes. I grew up in Fresno and even in the 1980s, a lot of the wine grapes used in the Napa wine, but also just used in cheap California and Gallo and Franzia wines. They're all grown right where I grew up. So I grew up knowing about how wine grapes are grown and all of that. Not how they're grown so much as I learned when I was writing the book. I learned that I didn't know much, but what I knew is that they were grown there and I would drive by them. They were pretty, whatever. I didn't know a lot about wine. I knew that the cheap wine, a lot of it was grown in the Central Valley, still is. When I was writing the book, in the first couple of drafts, the primary character, the protagonist, Ingrid, she was not on the farm. I had I wanted to structure, the, I'm very bad at structure. And I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll just completely lift the structure from The Great Gatsby, which is the most, most mathematically perfect book like on the in, in the history of letters. And so I was like, can't do structure. So this is what I'll do. So I did this and Nick isn't involved in the story. He's just telling it. And so my editor kept saying, you have to involve Ingrid in the story. You have to place her on the farm. And so I finally was telling my editor, this book isn't working. This is the book I throw out. I have to start over with something. She said, oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. She said, you have to place Ingrid on the farm. This is how the book will work. I've been telling you. And I said, no, I can't do that because do you know how much research I would have to do? And she says, of course, the most obvious thing in the world, Catherine, do your research. Of course. And so I got in the car and I drove up to Fresno and I called all of the farmers my father plays golf with. And they were so helpful and so generous. And they said, well, what do you want to know? But I knew so little. I didn't know what it was I wanted to know. I said, I don't know. I just need to drive around with you. I just need to see what you do every day. There was one farmer in particular. He took me around. His name is my father's friend, Dewey Belli. He drove me around and I learned everything I know about farming from Dewey Belli, the magnanimous farmer of Fresno, California. (laughs) I feel like a lot of writers have to do so much research and it seems hard, like having to have people that you go in and you ask questions. I'd imagine, especially in an industry where the way you put it in the book is someone does well and someone doesn't, and there's like cutting edge stuff going on. I would feel so squeamish asking people to do it. 
take me out on the thing, show me the thing. But I guess people are proud of what they do. Squeamish, yes, I did. But also at that point, it was really life or death. I had told my editor, I had told her, I'm not doing this. I'm throwing this book out, and she had paid for the book. So she said, no you're not throwing the book out. The story is too good. You, Oh, at that point, I had already thrown one draft out and I'd started over because the voice wasn't working in the first draft I'd worked three years on. She said, your voice is finally working. You have the voice, you have the characters, you have the story. You need to place Ingrid on the farm. And she wouldn't let me throw it out. And so I really had absolutely no choice. And I was, I'll tell you, I was, yeah, I guess I was surprised, just surprised and relieved that People just let me hang out with them. They didn't even know how helpful they were being. And then we had another friend whose husband had been a big farmer. Actually, it was her husband who was the basis for this story in the first place. The book is based on something that happened to my father's best friend. Now, sadly, he's been he's passed away a while ago. But the story was based on something that had happened to him in the 1980s. And his widow was incredibly generous with me. And she took me out and gave me tons of details. And as far as the story goes, the betrayal anyway, she gave me the play-by-play on the how that happened, which is very personal and very generous of her. She knew I was writing a book. And then I was a little bit afraid when it came out that, an- that I would have another divorce. But I'm very mercenary when it comes to art. It's embarrassing to say, but this is the reality. I'm very mercenary. I thought a bit... If she doesn't want to be friends with me or my parents anymore, that's the way it is. <laughs> and in fact, I, she was thrilled with the book and really, I think, surprised that so much of her story was so interesting to me. But so she was very helpful. My father's friend Dewey was helpful with the farming stuff. There were a few other people who helped me themselves, but then also would direct me to others. I had a long and wonderful meeting with a person who works at one of the big, huge, it wasn't Gallo, but it was something just like that. I'm not allowed to say who it was because he kept saying, you must never tell anyone I did this. He says, I have to run everything through publicity. You must never tell anyone I did this. So I must not say it. But there were a lot of people in the Central Valley who were, were really helpful for that book. And I'm not a researcher. That's why I write fiction but I wanted to tell this story. And the only way I could tell it is if I knew a lot more than I already did about farming. Yeah. There are so many little details, like even just the way you're talking about how the grapes are on the vine and everything, like it really brings it all to life. So I enjoyed that. I also was overwhelmed by how much alcohol is in the book. (laughs) Did you read the first book? (laughs) I did, but I was... just a bunch of drunks throughout my books. <laughs> but it was more, it wasn't so much that it was like, it, it was because I feel like nobody was like wildly out of control, except for right. that one guy at the harvest party. And even then it's one of his best moments. But like just this idea of like you listing how someone made a drink. It's also just so you. It was, I was a professional. <laughs> it was so fun to just Bartender, like, I mean, there's so much with alcohol in particular and food, I guess, but there's so much like preference. So to hear, oh, the gimlets with the lime or stuff, it just <laughs> is like really specific. I enjoyed those little details. It was really nice. And I, or it was also just weird. Like all the characters were always eating or drinking, like always. <laughs> That's hilarious. When my editor sent my first book to the wonderful, brilliant Dana Spiata for a blurb, 
Dana Spiata got back to her and said that she had loved the book and that, in fact, she thought it was a really nuanced portrait of alcoholism in young people. My <laughs> editor was like, alcoholism? Oh, we won't be using this blurb. Thank you. <laughs> Fortunately, she said more than that, but cut that part out. It is wild. Just the amount of alcoholism, but, or not maybe even alcoholism. I don't know. I just think it's, it was like medicine where it was just like, we're just having this. I, at that point when her dad was sick and she was like, do you need a drink? That book, especially, but also I guess the first book too, but Valley Fever really is about people on the brink of survival and yes, the self-medication. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of foreboding was so intense and it felt like the main character is really running away from herself a lot. And I'm like, you don't have to do that. You seem great. But everyone feels like they're coping so much. And then I thought, oh God, maybe that's just life. Like we're all just coping. Yes. Are we? I don't know. I want there to be more because I find (laughs) that coping insinuates that you can't enjoy yourself, that you're busy treading water to look up and see whatever it is. I think that is so spot on this idea that either you're cope, you're treading water, not, tre- I don't know if that book is treading water. I feel like they are treading water, but they're about to drown. I hope that by the end, they find the steps to the pool and get out. I hope that's like the feeling that's there, but I think that's exactly what the book is, right? They're, I don't know if they're treading water, but they're treading, they're like really trying to s- just stay above water is what they're trying to do. Yeah. This novel reminded me of that moment that you have when you're growing up, growing up, like you're an adult and you realize what being an adult really means. And I felt like it meant realizing all the unpleasant parts about life that your dad took out a lot of loans and that sometimes the crop's not so good. And then you realize so much of this, even when you're older, right? When maybe you could have coped with it, you're 19, maybe you could have dealt, but actually it's maybe not until much later. Sometimes it's not even until your parents die that people have this kind of revelation that like, oh shit, life has all these really mucky parts to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yes, I do know. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) I got a good vibe at the end. I felt like things were coming through. My first novel that was published was my fourth novel I wrote as an adult, not including the stuff I wrote as a teenager. And I think I got into boarding school because when I was 10, I wrote my first novel. And my mother, my determined mother, so determined to get me out of Fresno when I was 13 years old, sent the novel to with the application. <laughs> but my first novel was the fourth one I wrote as an adult. One of the things my wonderful editor at the time, Courtney Hodel, who's no longer in editing, unfortunately, said when we were revising the book was, Catherine, it's got to have, it's got to have redemption. I was so against redemption. I'm sure that my, the previous novels were terrible, but they all went out to editors. I always, I always had an agent. They were always being sent out. None of them ever got a deal. And I'm sure looking back, it was because they were so bleak and there was no redemption. She knew how to strike a young female writer in the heart, especially one from California's San Joaquin Valley, by saying, even play it as it lays has redemption. I was like, oh, okay. All right. There, okay. All right. There will be redemption in that case. But absolutely, she was right. There must be just some wink of redemption, some little reflection, some morsel of hope by the end. Otherwise, 
the book, like our, we spend so much of our lives trying to grasp onto little bits of hope. You don't sit down and read a novel when the lesson at the end is there is no hope. That's maybe there. Are, I'm sure there must be some that are successful that do that. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Actually, did you ever read maybe a couple of years ago? It was a hit, and I was like, why the hell is this a hit? A Little Life. You know, I never read the hits. Yeah. <laughs> because I think if it's a hit and everyone else likes it, I'm definitely going to hate it. So this I was have, like this insane book that felt like torture porn. Like it was yes, like, I, I remember it was a very thick, big book. Yeah. Yes. It was a huge hit. Yes. I do remember this book. And yes. I think the reason why it was a hit, it was very well-written, but I think it was a little bit like it kept stringing you along thinking that this character was going to get that hope. You were like, it's fine. He's out of that relationship. It's fine. The guy who molested him is gone or whatever. And it just kept happening to the point where the main character was hurting himself, like physically. And it was like this whole thing where it was just like at the end of the book, it was like, there is no hope. And I felt the book was using this trauma, this perpetual trauma to propel us almost in this like rubbernecking kind of way. And I was like, I felt gross by the end of the book. It's like, why did I read <laughs> this? Huge, it was a huge success. I can't remember why. I didn't read the book, but I can't, and I can't remember why I went, but I went to the LA Public Library for an in-conversation event with the author. And, and I remember at this event, there were people there with the characters' names on t-shirts. People were obsessed with this book. Wow. So I guess I'll, there you go. That's a perfect example of a successful novel that clearly resonated with people that has absolutely, I didn't read it, but, but I wouldn't know if it has redemption, <laughs> but I'm trusting you that it does not. There are Russian novels that don't have redemption. Anyway. I don't know. But the other thing that this was making me think about is this relationship that you have with an editor. It's a wild idea for me. I would assume it's similar-ish to having like a gallerist who says, you know what? I don't want this in the show. I want this in the show. But like the gallerist isn't like in there helping you make the painting per se. I thought you were going to say it's similar to having a shrink. Yes, <laughs> it is similar to having a shrink. That's good. I want that. <laughs> I want an art shrink. I think I've been very, I've had two editors, Courtney Hodel and the wonderful Emily Bell. These two incredibly brilliant women, both at FSG. And I think I've, I have been so far in my career, even actually I've had some wonderful editors at short story magazines as well. I've been very lucky so far where either they say editors don't edit anymore. It doesn't happen. They don't edit. Not in my experience. I have editors who've been extremely hands-on. I hate that cliche, but I don't mean whatever. They are involved in the process, invested in the process, and also interested in the human being who's creating the work. So I've had, I think, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a different, when I read about other people's experiences or hear, oh, editors don't edit anymore. That is not, that has not been my experience. I was lucky to be at a house where that's, that happens, but I have plenty of friends who aren't at FSG, plenty of other houses all over the place, and they all have editors who are invested, who do the work, who are involved in every sentence. The line edits I got from both Courtney and Emily were really quite intense. I don't think I am unique. I don't think FSG is unique in this phenomenon. I think that the idea that editors don't edit anymore is a bit of a myth. I say that now everybody's going to be like, "She's what's she talking about? But <laughs> in my experience, that's a myth. I've had editors 
who really edit and you have a very, very deep and personal relationship with, at least during the period where the book is being edited. Is it traumatic to get edits back and just like everything's read? No, that's the most wonderful thing in the world. Oh no, it's such a relief because you hand in and what will happen, especially if you have a good editor, which I have been very lucky to have. No, you get the edits back and you've got, there's just, and it's not always red. It's in all different colors, (laughs) but you get it back and there's stuff all over and it's, oh, thank God. I knew that there was stuff in this book not working. I just didn't know how to fix it. And now you've got this manuscript back and you've got a roadmap, you know, exactly how to fix this book. And it is there actually, I cannot think of anything that's so comforting as that, for, as that is. When I was working on Valley Fever, I handed in a first draft. I'd been working on it for three years. I knew it was awful. I just knew it was bad. And in fact, it wasn't even really complete, but I said, I've got to get this out of my hands. I don't know where to go with it. I don't know what to do with it. So I gave it to Courtney Hodel and she took me out to lunch about two months later. And one of the first things she said to me was, you need to throw this entire thing out. She says, I want you to keep the story and I want you to keep the characters. This draft has to go. I said, show me lines that are working. And she said, I could pull out sentences and certain phrases that are really beautiful that are working. She said, but I don't want you to start from anything in this manuscript. I want you to start completely over. And when I tell people this story, I tell the story a lot, especially to my students. People say, golly, that must have been so devastating. And in fact, it was such a relief. I knew the manuscript wasn't working. So what could be more of a relief than this person I respect so much telling me it's not working? And also who's already paid for the book, throw it out. Yeah, that's the permission you needed. Yes. And then what I did was I wrote another draft in three months. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, in, so those uh, for a certain writer, I think for most writers, those edits are like just, they're delicious. I love getting a manuscript back all marked up. It's just, it's such pleasure. Yeah. I guess it does remind me a little bit of crits. Everybody's sitting around talking about your work and you could <laughs> seriously disagree with people, but I always loved the fun of trying to articulate why I thought something or why they were maybe not looking at it quite the right way or whatever. I just loved that exercise. It felt like, I don't know, like your brain is alive. (laughs) Yeah. What are you working on right now? I was dreading telling you that I'm working on the same thing I was working on at at, at, (laughs) Lighthouse. No, this is good. (laughs) No, novels take a long time. I am coming to the end. I've been coming to the end for a long time. I am again, at the point where I need to get it out of my hands. And this one though, I don't think I'm going to have to throw it out and start over. We'll see. I feel like the idea of working on a novel, something like so big, so ungainly feels like an insane task. Do you have like some things that you just, every time you go into it, like you do, like, how do you wrestle with that? I was talking earlier about change. And when I sit down at the desk, I do try to keep in the back of my mind that something, when I sit down to write a scene, I do try to keep in the back of my mind, something has to change. That can be tricky because if that's what you're thinking, then you can self-censor so easily. And that's, those are the days where you get one or two sentences written, if that. And so sitting down at the desk thinking, okay, whatever you write today, the scene has to change something. Even if I don't know what it's going to be at the time, something has to change. That can actually be stifling. So (laughs) I have to sit down and just write. What was the question? I'm sorry. 
I think my question was a little confusing in the sense that like, I feel like what you just said was like, how do you start? Right. Where you're like, no, no rules. Right. Or else then what do you have? You've got some weird stunted thing where I also think like, how do you get it done? So for example, you're saying that you are bad at structure. I don't know what that, (laughs) I don't know what that means. What does that mean if you're bad at structure? (laughs) It means that I am very bad at moving the plot along in a timely manner, the way a novel is supposed to move along or the way a story, not a novel, a story. Screenwriters, when they go to school, all they're taught is structure. They're not talk about how to make snappy dialogue or what makes Mm. a beautiful sentence. And really all I care about is beautiful sentences. That is really (laughs) all I care about. But as the wonderful Peter Carey told me when I was in graduate school, okay, your sentences are beautiful, but if they don't string together and make a proper story, nobody is going to read your beautiful sentences. And then what point is there in writing them? And at the time, yeah, I was like, I was 22 years old. And I thought, oh, you're wrong. All I care about is beautiful sentences. That's why my first four, my first three novels written as an adult were not published. You have to write a story in whatever form that story takes. I'm rereading this terrific book, How Should a Person Be by Sheila Hetty. Um, oh. Have you read this wonderful novel? Put it on your list. <laughs> I'm going to put it on my list. When you read the book for the first time, or maybe even the second time, the structure is not apparent. It just appears to be a story about a woman moving through the world. That could not be further from the truth. There is, once you read it through, and I'm reading it again to find out how she does, like mathematically, how does she do this? It's just a beautiful book. It's beautiful because it has beautiful sentences. It has terrific humor. It has warm characters. The voice is spiky and smart and perfect. And somehow she moves this story forward. How does she do this? Because you don't even notice there's a story really until you're with the book. (laughs) I'm interested in how people move through the world that doesn't always make a story. So you have to structure a story so that, as I said, so that there's change. When I'm revising, I don't think about change when I'm writing a first or even second draft. But when I'm revising and I realize people have to read this book, they have to want to turn the page. I will turn the page because a sentence is so beautiful. But how many pages will I turn because a sentence, the sentences are beautiful? Maybe 10. I'm very impatient, but not impatient with beautiful sentences. There has to be something, some sort of drive in a novel. And it's tricky to get right, especially if all you care about is beautiful sentences. Yeah. It's like everything is balanced. You can't just put all your eggs in that one basket. And also when I think about the books I love, how should a person be? But also... I was speaking earlier about like the structure of The Great Gatsby. I, but I love The Great Gatsby. Why do I love this book? Because there are characters I care, and the sentences are beautiful. There are characters I care about. The books I really like, things happen. Other than How Should a Person Be, is there another book that you're like, people just got to read this book? Golly, I'm looking around at what's on my desk right now. And the problem is I hate everything. Actually, there is a book that was published recently. I'm going to get it because it's right here and I really love it. It's this excellent brand. It's not brand new. It's published earlier this year. Matthew Spector's Always Crashing in the Same Car. It's a memoir, but it's not a memoir at all. It's about a book about failure. The cover says on art crisis Los- and Los Angeles, California. It's not that much about Los Angeles. Yes, it does take place in Los Angeles because it's about sort of failed people. And it is intertwined with this story of Matthew Spector's divorce and feelings of professional and personal failure and how he explores the professional and personal failure of other moderately or very successful people. Let's see. 
Carol Eastman, Eleanor Perry, Warren Zev on Tuesday Weld, and Hal Ashby, among others. Anyway, so this, I've been reading this <laughs> for the second time. And the thing is about this book is Matthew Spector is a crafter of sentences. Mm. So on a sentence to sentence level, this book is perfect but it also has this story. You care about the character, Matthew. It's nonfiction, but you care about this person, Matthew, and his divorce and these feelings of failure and the desperation. And he entwines it with this research he's doing about these other artists. And I've found it very compelling. But pretty much everything I read, I put aside. And I'm very impatient. I'll read five pages and put it aside. No um, way. Oh, I'm, oh, yeah. You pay $30 for a book. And then I thought I needed to read that, but I don't need to read it. And so what I end up doing, like just how I'm reading the Sheila Hetty book for the third or fourth time, at least, I end up reading the books. I remember if a book makes me actually feel something, then I want to read it again and again, because the, especially when I'm right at the end of this novel, where I want to feel something before I sit down at the desk, I don't want to waste my time reading something I don't know that I'm going to love. In the book I'm writing now, the character has a lot of, she references a lot of other artists. She's obsessed with other artists and how has nothing to do with me, Trin, naturally, but she's obsessed <laughs> with other artists and how they make a life, right? How I love the title, How Should a Person Be? Because it's like Sheila Hetty's book is not about that, but in the same kind of spirit, how do you make a life? Especially if you're an artist, how do you, how do you have a life? What happens? And I don't mean financially. I just mean like, how do you live from, how do you go on when you don't know if your art is going to reach anyone? And what's the point? There are days where I do wake up and think, okay, I'm going to sit down and write this novel today. And really, what is the point? Yeah. What is the point? <laughs> I'm so with you there. One of my questions will often be like, okay, I made a human and this human has all these needs and it's cool and exciting to be in charge of these needs and like to watch them grow. But then also a part of me is like, yeah, but remember that painting that you were like going to make a couple months ago? What about that painting? And so it's just this, like this push and pull. And I, I have kept my sort of ear to the ground for other painters and specifically, although artists of any kind really who are able to balance those two things. I feel like, where are they? So sometimes I'll just be like looking at interviews and what little snippet did they say? Or I remember someone said once that there's this painter, Dana Schutz, and she was pregnant and I was pregnant. And I was like, am I going to oil paint while I'm pregnant? It's toxic. I don't know. And then someone said, Dana Schutz, she only did charcoal drawing. And I was like, oh my God, it's brilliant. And then, uh, but of course she was a world famous painter at that time. So I don't know what I thought I was going to gain from knowing what she was doing, but I do think there is this totally natural thing to just need to know how other people are doing it. Yes. I'm obsessed with artist biographies. I've been reading the Warhol biography for almost a year. It is so dense. There is so much information. It does not so much excite me on a sentence to sentence level. It's just packed with interesting stuff. And because it's so dense, I just read a few pages at a time. And then another one about the Swiss writer, Robert Walser. I think his last name is pronounced Walser. W-A-L-S-E-R. The thing I'm working on now, the main character, totally unrelated to me, Trin is obsessed with other artists and their biographies. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of what I'm reading is making its way into what I'm doing now. As it you should. have to learn how to operate. We all, we, I don't know, and not just artists, but we all have to learn how to operate in the world. I think that's why people read novels in the first place. Okay. This is my holdover question of when we were doing this 
this thing that was similar during COVID where I was interviewing people and I always asked them who their diva was. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like I got to keep asking. I'm going to be like a total cliche of a writer and tell you that it's Joan Didion. I'm from Fresno. So what, I mean, what in the world? Of course it's Joan Didion. (laughs) Don't fight it. Don't fight it. I'm 48 years old and it's time to embrace (laughs) who I am. And I still want to be Joan Didion. It is a joy to see you and talk to you. I'm so happy to see you on the screen and talk to you. (laughs) Really, I'm just completely delighted. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and keep in touch via our Instagram at to the lighthouse works for any podcast or residency related news and don't forget to check out all the additional content that accompanies each episode on our website lighthouseworks.us i also want to say thank you to all the artists and writers who have come through our program we are routinely in awe of what you do and i want to say thank you for keeping us afloat that's all for me for now see you next time on more friends <laughs>